which are the things, the things that we do that we clearly are better at than anyone else that our customers don't acknowledge, won't pay us for, don't see value in. We, we go to Mark and say, we're better at this, and our customers say, great, can I get a discount? And it winds up getting commoditized anyway. It's so frustrating. Leading Matters with Joel Caparelli. This episode of Leading Matters features Brent Adamson. I get into a longer introduction, as I always do at the beginning of the interview. Um, but he wrote the Challenger Sale, one of the co-authors of the Challenger Sale, and also the more recent Challenger Customer. Uh, his organization, CEB, you can find them at CEB Global, does tons of research in you know, just about every area of running a business. And it's, it's really powerful insight. And listen, here's the reason I, I had sought to get... Brent on the show is that when I read this book and a little bit of backstory, I actually received the book in 2010, 2011, I think, from a conference that I had gone to, uh, but I, I can't, candidly never picked it up. And then within the past, I would say, 18 months, I, I, people were talking quite a bit about it. It seemed to be getting more momentum. So I decided to uh, pick it up probably about a year ago. And it was just one of those books when you come away from it, you know that it's going to be around for a while. In other words, it's not just a an immediate you know, analysis or research or take or current spin on things. It has impactful meaning and will reverberate through literally um, you know, years. And I, I, it's my, my opinion, but I think that's uh, going to play out. So uh, you know, I, I wanted to get Brent on the show, and man, am I glad I did. And I want to get into the interview quickly because it runs about 40 minutes. But please do yourself a favor and, and listen to this one a couple of times because uh, qu- quite a bit of a uh, lot of information packed in here and what you know Brent and, and CEB are doing here is really diving deep into some great analysis of data uh, that they've researched and coming up with what that data means to the impact of not only sales which is where they began but also how we're running our entire business and and you know we talk a lot about mission and purpose and values here on leading matters and it absolutely impacts the very essence and DNA of a company if we're going to adopt this idea and this notion of becoming a challenger. So if you haven't read it, listen, you're going to get a great taste for what being a challenger means and what it's all about. If you have read it, I guarantee you you're going to be edified, uh, excuse me, edified anew by listening to Brent speak about it. He's incredibly passionate and knowledgeable on his subject matter. And you're going to just, uh, you know, that, that passion's infectious, quite frankly. So I'm going on as I as I'm, uh, want to do here. So let's jump into my interview with the co-author of the Challenger Sale, Brent Adamson. Welcome back to Leading Matters. And today my guest is Brent Adamson. And uh, listen, I have to be honest with you that I almost don't even know where to start with introductions. Uh, you know, his work has made such an impact. His passion for what he does is, is really very compelling. And his the reach of, of his work has been so broad that, that I'm kind of fearful of leading something out. But you know, I have to introduce my guest, so I'm going to just go ahead and dive in. Uh, Brent Adamson is perhaps best known as the co-author of the best-selling and, and I think groundbreaking book, The Challenger Sale, and its follow-up, most recently, The Challenger Customer. He's the chief storyteller for CEB and applies his expertise to their sales executive council and marketing leadership council. 
He has more than 20 years of experience as a professional researcher, a teacher, a trainer, facilitator. And what makes this perspective so compelling is that he believes that even in the world's best research only drives actions when wrapped up in a compelling story. And that kind of speaks to my passion as well, because I think the narrative has quite a bit to do with what we do on a day-to-day in our businesses. So first things first, Brent, I can't thank you enough for taking time out of your day and joining me on Leading Matters. Absolutely, Joel. Happy to join you and your listeners today. You know, it's, it's funny that with an introduction like that, it's great because now I can talk for three hours and, and I think it'll be okay because we got a lot to talk about, don't we? <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. I love that. So listen, let, let's go ahead and, and, and start that three-hour countdown now and I'm going to jump right in. Challenger Sale, for those who haven't read it, talks about what sets the best sales reps apart. And it identified five different types of sales reps. Uh, they were the hard worker, the relationship builder, the lone wolf, the problem solver, and then ultimately the challenger. And typified by this challenger type are reps that, um, you know, they get their prospects to think a little bit differently. And they educate their buyer in a way that the buyer is not yet even aware that they need educating. So Brent, that's the first uh, question I have is when I, when I read it, it really seemed to be a much larger story than just a sales methodology, but really a, a broad organizational impact. Now, is that me reading into it? Or is that a kind of a fair assessment of the impact that the book might have and the met- methodology might have? No, Joel, I think that that is spot on. Although I got to tell you, honestly, it's been a bit of a, a learning journey for ourselves at CEB across the last, what, five or six years since we first found this research or these findings in our research to really figure out how to best articulate what it is, in fact, that we have found. So when we found these five profiles of sales reps, we find the challengers most likely to win. We find a set of behaviors associated with being a challenger. And we start telling the world that story. You know, in many ways, um, the first reaction we got from heads of sales around the world was, you know, I already do methodology A or methodology B, so I got to stop that and start this. And, you know, do, is that right? Uh, do, is this, in fact, a, or just, you know, very bluntly, is this, in fact, a sales methodology at all? And, and to be totally honest, uh, back in, what, 2009, 2010, uh, we didn't really have a clear answer on that because we hadn't really thought about it, but to be totally fair. Um, but the more we've thought about it, and more importantly, I think the more research that we've done into this body of work around what the best suppliers are doing to win in today's environment, we've come to really appreciate the fact that what we're really talking about here is actually not a sales methodology, or maybe not just a sales methodology. It is absolutely a commercial strategy because the story, it spans deep into the customer organization, which is the focus of our new book, but also more importantly, or as importantly, back into the the, the supplier organization, back into certainly into marketing without question, but even potentially into places like product development, certainly product teams. And it really boils down to this question of how do we as a supplier uh, go to market uh, more broadly speaking, particularly in a world where much of the customer interaction that they happens long before a sales rep is even there present in the field on the phone and, uh, anyway, right? So a lot of that interaction we as a supplier might have with our customer happens through, for example, content or maybe third-party vendors or channel partners. And so thinking about how we apply the core lessons of Challenger that originally uh, came to us in the form of a sales rep, uh, how do we apply that finding across the broader supplier capability uh, we find to be crucially important. Look, I, I love it. You're speaking my language, right? Because I, I you know, again, I, I'm kind of in, invigorated to hear about the input. Now, I haven't read Customer uh, Challenger yet, so, so I'm so anxious to pick it up. But let me stay on this whole idea of product marketing and product management for a second, right? Because, you know, to your point, it seems to me that that 
that, okay, and I, I appreciate what you're saying because the book was very research intensive and now you're saying the models kind of evolved over time and really a commercial strategy. I love that description of it because, you know, that wasn't obviously part of the book when you wrote it, but now you see it as such. So given that you think it's a commercial strategy, I mean, what does this do for the product management discipline and the product marketing discipline? Is it is it a necessity for these teams to really try to gain deeper insight, not into the, the typical pain solution type of methodology that they've maybe come from, but more in a um, innovate the customer's needs ahead of their needs. I mean, again, is that kind of a fair read? Is that what the commercialization of the model might mean to me as a product manager or marketer? It, it, it absolutely does. In fact, it means it means a number of things. Let me tell you what, I'll tease out a couple of them and you pick one or two, Joel, that you'd like to dig in deeper and, and we'll see where we go from there. But the um, when you think about, let's go back to the sort of the starting premise of what a challenger really is doing. To your point, Joel, they are, they are challenging customers with new ideas, uh, with new insights. But if I may, I'll turn the screws on it just a little bit tighter and say it's, it's more than just teaching them new ideas full stop. It's actually teaching customers new perspectives, new insights, not about the world, but specifically about that customer's own organization. So what challengers are really challenging about is challenging customers' own perspective of their current operations, uh, teaching them new ways to make money, save money, uh, mitigate risk in ways they themselves haven't fully appreciated, despite all of their own learning and all of their own research. Now, when you think about from that perspective, uh, this is, again, why we start thinking about this as a commercial strategy and not just a, uh, a sales methodology, right? Because you start thinking about that. Actually, it's pretty hard. Uh, and and uh, in many ways, I kind of wish we'd found something easier in our day, but this is where you know, the research takes us, so this is where we go. Now we've got to figure out how to make all that doable. And what we found is, whether you're talking sales or marketing, but particularly to your question about marketing, it means a number of things. All right, so let me tick off a couple, and then uh, and I'll stop, and we can dig in where you'd like to go on this, if, and maybe to all of them. But if we're going to teach customers something about their business, not about the world, not about our business, not about our value proposition, but something specific about their business that they've missed on their own, it means that we actually have to know the customer's business better than they know it themselves, at least that part of their business that speaks to our capabilities. And to do that, and yet at the same time, uh, the question we always get right off of that statement, which is the right one to ask, is how do we avoid the free consulting trap, essentially, right? So I go out and teach customers something new about their business. They say, wow, that's fantastic. They take that insight, put it in RFP, goes out to bid, and we lose the deal. That doesn't feel particularly good, does it? And, and we'd agree that doesn't. That's actually, again, that's the free consulting trap. So what we've come to uh, really, and we kind of knew this from the very beginning, what we've come to really appreciate is if we're going to teach a customer something new about their business in a way that gets us paid, we've got to make sure that whatever we teach the customer about their business leads back to some capability that we can deliver to the market better than anyone else. All right, so now we've got that as our, our foundational idea. What does it mean for marketing? Well, for marketing, it means a couple things. Number one, it means we actually have to know what we do as a supplier better than anyone else. Now, granted, that's not just marketing. That's marketing sales. That's your CEO. But collectively, we as a leadership team need to be able to identify those unique, those capabilities that truly set us as, <clears throat> excuse me, as a supplier apart so that, the question I always like to ask members, our member companies at CEB is, what are the things that we, what are our strengths to, what are our unique strengths, the things that truly set us apart, and then finally, what are our sustainable unique strengths? And it turns out that's a really difficult question to answer. But that's, that's so that would be area one, is identifying those unique strengths. Area two is, for marketing in particular, it means that, again, if we're going to teach the customer something new about their business, then we need to understand what they think about their business right now. We need to understand how they perceive 
their current operations, what they think are, what's, what's important, what are their priorities, how are they going to make that happen, how does it all work, what's their logic. We have a name for that, and we spend a lot of time in book number two going through this in a lot of detail, but we call that a mental model. What is the customer's mental model for what they're trying to accomplish and how they're actually going to make that happen? Because that's ultimately the thing that we're going to have to teach them about. We're going to have to show them that somewhere in that mental model that our customers created for their world, whether it's implicit or explicit, that they've missed something materially important to their business. So when you get on the marketing side, this means that we actually have to think pretty differently about um, things like voice of the customer, customer surveys. So, so if you think about sort of how most of us do customer surveys today, it's, you know, we, we've got satisfaction scores, we've got net promoter scores, we've got customer voice, we've got all this data that we collect on our customers, win-loss, you name it, trying as deep as we possibly can to understand how do our customers think about us? Are they satisfied with us? Will they recommend us? Are they happy with the service they receive from us? But in this world of the challenger world, if we're going to teach customers something new about their own business, it means we actually have to get much better at not about understanding the customer's view of us, but we need to get better at understanding customers' view of themselves, which is a different kind of customer understanding altogether. And we think this is a massive opportunity for most organizations, particularly most marketing organizations, to think very differently, not about doing a better job of sourcing or sussing out what do customers think about us, but what do they think about themselves? How do they see themselves? And then ultimately, what do they miss along the way? And then the third thing is, uh, if we wanted to, Joel, we can get into content marketing. Because once you, once you figure out these ideas and you build a story around them that leads to your strengths as opposed to leads with your strengths, uh, yes, you can turn that into a piece of collateral, a sales collateral or a pitch deck or some sort of PowerPoint presentation handed to your sales reps. Um, and you probably should. But at the same time, you can also turn it into an entire suite of content, break it down into component pieces, whether it's blog posts or infographics, put it out in the world and, and let your customers essentially find their way on that path of, of a disruptive idea back to your doorstep. We, and in that world, it changes things like lead management. You can track things as we like to call it the, the consumption of, of disruption. So those are three pretty foundational ways in which Challenger as a commercial strategy rewrites the rules for marketing pretty significantly, or at least fine-tunes it and points out things that become crucially important. Wow. That, you know, this might, this just might show the, uh, the marketing geek that I am, right? But I, I literally have chills as you talk about it, right? Because I, you know, I, I kind of, this is why I'm so excited about your work, because I've kind of internalized it, and I, I've tried to conduct these things. Um, but to see them on paper and the way you guys have articulated how you kind of grab a hold of it, it's because what I like about it, Brent, and I want to, here's what I want to ask is three areas, right? Because I want to actually throw you a little bit of curveball here. It seems to me, you know, I taught a, uh, an MBA marketing class uh, a couple semesters, and I always dust off the old marketing myopia case, case study, right? So, hey, we're not in the, you know, the buggy whip example, you know, we're not in the, but we're not in the business of making buggy whips, you know, we're in the business of making the horse go. And, and how come these companies didn't identify that to transition themselves into car starters or things like that right so it's like so it's to me it sounds like everything that's old is new again almost so is it is it more of a fact that oh, over the last 20 years with the you know from the from really the the dawn of the enterprise software where we had to solve needs get gain value solve needs and gain value that it's locked us into this kind of you know this myopic view of our world because we're so concerned as as the deliverer of the solution to drive quickly to solution and quickly to value. I mean, is that is that a symptom of the problem? Why we can't escape that kind of myopic look? I I, I don't I, I don't know. That's a good question. You know, there's a there's a, at least a couple things going on here that are are really fascinating. If you're a researcher, they're fascinating. If you're a practitioner, they're they're maddening, right? Because they're so frustrating. But the um, I think one of the, the problems that every 
commercial organization, B2B organization struggling with is, you know, over the last, what, 5, 15, sometimes now even 20 years, we've all been on this journey to build up bigger, broader solutions. And I'll do the little air quote thing around solutions, right? So we we don't want to sell just individual products or individual services that are easily replicated, uh, easily commoditized, but we want to stitch those services and products together with additional services, additional consulting, additional uh, you know, uh, 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 capabilities to be able to bro- deliver a broader solution to our customer because that allows us to differentiate ourselves in the marketplace, to stand out, to command a higher premium. It makes a ton of sense. We've been, it's funny, I've been at CEB now for the better part of 13 years, uh, and we've been talking about solution selling since literally the day I got here, and that was already a five-year journey we were on at that time. But what's interesting, I think most interesting for me is, is thinking about that evolution of solution selling, Joel, is that over the years, as most suppliers have built out their broad solution set in order to differentiate themselves from the competition, their top two competitors have been doing the exact same thing in more or less the exact same way. So, uh, so you take, a, just to use an example off the top of my head, if you take something like um, FedEx, right? So FedEx is a world-class leader in logistics. I think we'd all agree with that. And if we were to list out all of their strengths, it would be a very long list. But if you were to ask the, slight, the, the, the different question, which is what are their unique strengths relative to their competition, what's interesting is that FedEx has built out an incredible array of solutions over the last, what, 10, 15 years. Their number one, if not number two competitors, have been doing the same thing. So they find themselves today, in many ways, not that much better off than they were, uh, you know, they certainly are now easily uh, differentiated from uh, the commoditized sellers, but they're still not easily differentiated from top solutions uh, providers. And I think that's so, what's so interesting, coming back to your question, Angel, the reason I bring this up here is because we've all been so focused on building this broader set of solutions to to differentiate ourselves, to evolve. It's the very opposite. I think that someone's like, oh, I knew buggy whips weren't going to sell anymore. I know I'm in this broader solutions business. And yet we build out the solution and find out that we're still nonetheless commoditized anyway, which is so maddening because the very thing that we were trying to escape by building out these solutions and thinking broadly about what we do has in itself become commoditized. And, and, and that, that leads us to this really interesting question, which is, you know, in this world, uh, what we really have to do is figure out what truly sets us apart. Uh, and it turns out that's a difficult question when uh, when those solutions can be replicated. Let me just stop there and get your thoughts on that because I, I think this is a – I don't think it's we haven't – companies haven't been thinking hard about what they do or what their sort of sine qua non is, right? I think it's a – it is a, it's a, 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 a broader challenge of even when we do that, we find we're still struggling to differentiate nonetheless. Now, you know, it's interesting. I, I like your take on it, right? Because I, you know, I, 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 I come to find myself agreeing exactly what you're saying is that I love that example where you said, hey, not the fact that the buggy whip, for lack of, you know, to, to use that myopia story, didn't necessarily miss the opportunity to innovate and change, but that once they did, they were commoditized anyway, right? So that that's clear. I, I understand that problem. But you know what, I, what? As you're speaking about it, I want to go back to what what I, I personally believe could be a catalyst here, and I'd be curious to hear what you think about it. Because you talked about content marketing a little earlier, and you said, sure, you need the pitch decks, you need the slides and all that. that that's like a you know table stakes kind of thing for marketing. You have to enable your sales force. But, but ahead of that, it seems to me, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, this is how I'm kind of hearing it, that you need to articulate that that, that story in an impactful way, in other words, what does it mean for you, Mr. Customer, and your business and the things you're not thinking about, and then how do you kind of follow that story along in not just the pitch deck, but in all of the pieces of content that could, you know, that, that really kind of highlight for me, if I'm, the, if I'm the consumer of the services or the, or the, or the product, 
how I ought to be thinking about it. So I, I'm kind of kind of an esoteric question here, right? But I guess what I'm suggesting is can we use content as a catalyst internally within our own organization to kind of spark that sort of um, approach that, that we need to, to be this kind of challenger sale type of organization? I think so. In fact, I, I, I think it's pretty um, it's pretty urgently important, right? So they, you know, I, I take this conversation, sort of the, the, this part of our conversation right now, and I like to boil it down to, to a series of four. I guess in this case, in this context, I'd add a fifth question. But the the, the question here's here's a four step question, uh, a series of questions to get you on this journey, um, which is number one: What are our unique strengths? What are truly the capabilities we have that set us apart from anyone else? Or as that Devil or Granger likes to say. Um, why should our customers buy from us over anyone else? And by the way, those unique strengths might range well beyond the product or service that you sell and, and, and get into the ecosystem of the capabilities that surround that product. Uh, we can come back to that if you want. But that's question number one. What are our unique strengths? Now, question number two takes us in a really different direction than most marketing organizations or supplier organizations would go, which is of those unique strengths we identified in question number one, which of those capabilities are currently underappreciated by our customer, which are the things, the things that we do that we clearly are better at than anyone else that our customers don't acknowledge, won't pay us for, don't see value in. We, we go to Mark and say, we're better at this, and our customers say, great, can I get a discount? And it winds up getting commoditized. Anyway, it's so frustrating. And then ask yourself question number three, what is it that they don't understand? It's like, mm, because it's so frustrating. It's just like, if they just understood this, then they pay us for that, but they don't. And that's my question number three. What is it that customers fail to understand about their business? That leads them to undervalue that capability that truly sets us apart, which is then number four, leads to number four, which is, okay, so if that's what they fail to understand, what would we have to teach them? What would we have to teach them, not about the world, not about our business, not about our strengths, our value proposition, but about their business, their performance? What would we have to teach them about their business to lead them to value that capability more than they do now in a way that's going to lead back to us. And then that gets me fear. So those are our four questions for commercial insight, as we like to call it. But I'd add the fifth here in terms of marketing, which would be, okay, once we get that figured out, then how do we take that insight and bake it into all of the content? Well, I don't know all, but you know, bake it into our, a repertoire of content that allows us to teach customers about their business in a way that puts them on the path to appreciating or understanding and valuing our unique capabilities better than they do now. And you have to get in questions like, so where do I put that content? You know, where, well, then the answer is, well, it depends on where your customers would go to seek it out. But I don't know if that was helpful, Joel, to kind of put it together like that, but that's how I take this conversation so far about content marketing and unique strengths and, and put it all together in this world of a commercial capability that is specific, whether it's through your content, your sales reps, or some other channel, to help your customers think differently about their business in a way that comes back to our unique strengths. No, I think it's exactly helpful. I mean, it's exactly kind of advice that uh, companies need to hear and, and, and those in my profession need to hear to kind of be that catalyst because that was kind of the, the angle that I was coming at is how do you kind of spark – what's the, the spark you need to ignite this kind of framework? And those five questions, four, and then you added the fifth at the end there seem like a logical step through, right? So here's – again, I, I'm going to ask you to correct me if you think I'm off base here, right? But one of the things I think within that context that you could use uh, to kind of head in that direction because what I find content marketers doing is they're so locked into the marketing funnel of driving a lead from marketing qualified to sales qualified. And then, and then, look, that's their job. They have to increase the volume of qualified leads. But I'm almost, you know, recently, I'm almost thinking like kind of a backwards way to look at it. Maybe we ought to align first with the sales stages themselves 
right? In other words, especially if we're taking this approach, this education-oriented approach to our marketplace. So let's align it towards moving that deal to the next stage within the deal and then reverse engineer the content back to the marketing funnel. Because my sense is that if I did that, right, then I'm naturally developing already to communicate and connect within the sales process first and then re-engineer it to use that as demand gen and lead gen. Again, this is kind of my idea. I'm just kind of curious. Do you think that's off base or would that help me to operationalize and internalize some of uh, this method? So, so it's a great question. I think it's the right one to ask. We actually, uh, and we get into this pretty significantly in the very back end of our new book, um, uh, but our thinking, to be totally honest, has actually evolved even since then. So we, we wrote the book over the holidays in December um, uh, of, I guess technically it's last year, um, but the, uh, since then we've actually published three new studies across uh, sales and marketing that got into a whole new research. And, and where we've landed on this question is this, that having a single purchase path or having a single journey of process that we're following, we agree with you, is, is absolutely right answer. Um, the, the path that we should be mapping, however, we've uh, landed pretty strongly based on a lot of data and a lot of research around, let's not map a sales process or a marketing process. Let's actually map a buying process. So, so if I'm going to guide customers through a purchase journey, I need to know what that purchase journey looks like in the first place. And, and by the way, for the marketers who you know, might be listening to thinking, well, we've done that already, we have, in fact, spent the last, uh, the better part of the last four years mapping a, a purchase journey. What's interesting is that uh, for most marketers we talk to have told us that they've already mapped the customer purchase journey. We say, well, let me see it. I'd love it because we're always curious. Like, let me see what you got. Um, and they'll lay it out, and it's usually four stages, and it looks like this, awareness, consideration, preference, and purchase, um, and, and some flavor of that. And what's interesting is you dig into that, and you think, well, what, what is actually that a map of? And, and if you think about awareness of whom, well, it's awareness of us and our capabilities and our unique strengths. Uh, preference for whom? It's preference for us. Well, considerate or considerate, awareness of us, consideration of us, preference for us, purchase from us. That's actually not the customer's purchase journey. That is the customer's purchase from us journey. But the purchase journey actually goes back farther, way farther earlier in time than that. So around, so we like to think of it as sort of three stages. There's the problem, solution, and supplier. So first we've got to get to define the problem. What is the problem? Is this a real problem? How does this problem range with other problems? Do we get agreement on it? Do we have consensus that this problem is even worth solving? If we agree that that's a problem, what would be the right solution? So let's, let's agree on a solution. Uh, is this the right solution? Is, you know, what capabilities do we need to meet that solution? Once we agree on the solution, then we've got to select the supplier. So define the problem, identify a solution, select the supplier. That's a much broader journey. And understanding what that journey looks like, and then more importantly, understanding where your customer is on that journey at any given point, and then being able to so verify that position, and then figuring out how do I guide them from one step in that journey to the next, really gets into our most recent work. And what's neat about it, so we did, a, just two weeks ago, we were out in Las Vegas with about 1,200 of our sales and marketing members across CEB, and we actually did a 90-minute exercise where I had our, it was a 1,200-person breakout, if you can believe it, but the, um, well, I had them all just map out what are the steps in your customer's purchase journey, what are the tools we can use to verify where they are in that journey, uh, what are the questions they have along that journey? Who are the stakeholders at each step in the journey? How do they disconnect? What are the obstacles they're going to overcome? How can we help them overcome those obstacles? Um, but that's a lot of stuff that, that goes pretty deep there, so I'm just kind of hinting at it. But the point of all this is if we can map out the entire thing in the terms of the customer buying journey, then it becomes less important whether we're talking about the sales process or the marketing process. It, it, it's all denominated in customers and customer behavior. And if we align to that, I think a lot of questions about what's, what is marketing on, what is sales on, go out the, go out the window. 
And it simply becomes, look, for any stage in that purchase journey, what are the customer's biggest challenges they need to overcome to move forward in their purchase? And whether we're talking sales or marketing, what's our best bet for helping them move through that stage into the next one? Uh, I can't wait to I can't wait to get uh, the challenger customer. I'm, I'm excited to to read it and, and to learn, right? And, and you know what? Listen, you've been you've been letting me be a little bit self indulgent here, so I'm gonna I'm gonna ask one more kind of self indulgent question because you talked about you know being way out ahead of that of that uh, you know identification of need, right? And I call it the kind of the above the funnel story of value. That's kind of something I kind of coined, right? And let me give you an, I want to give you an example, and I want to see if you think that I'm on the right track and if it's a good consideration to get into this. So real quickly, I was helping a uh, ERP SaaS player, and they served the manufacturing space. So there was a Gartner report on the manufacturing space, and, and really it was all about the connectivity of your cloud data with your connected uh, manufacturing hardware. So it was a hardware as a software story, and and really, if you really dug into this report, it was a very well done report by Gartner, and it talked a lot about security. So I kind of honed in on security with this client. I said, listen, the story here is obviously you're going to help them do connect what they need to connect and make sure their data is secure in the cloud and make sure their manufacturing line hardware and software is secure as well. I said, but the real story here is one of national security, right? Because you're talking about a, a multinational, large, U.S.-based manufacturer, wherever they're located, and then they're cloud data is um, you know insecure and it can actually connect to their actual line now you're talking about uh, the ability for a hacker to bring down an entire production line so it gets to the point where it could actually be a national security issue right and that is the problem that now obviously the folks at these manufacturing companies care about security but this was um, saying listen let's let's go at it from this approach because that's the really what they ought to be solving is to do their part to make sure that their manufacturing line and their cloud data was secure for this reason. And then let's map out the questions they're going to think through that to the point where they actually understand with with clarity what their integration process needs to be because listen they have priorities and resource constraints as well so they have to prioritize so that's where we kind of headed we kind of headed from let's let's get them to the point where we're helping them with their integration priorities because there's so much they can do that they can only start in one place now again that's kind of what I call it that listen let's tell the story above the marketing funnel and then we'll we'll drive as logically as we can down to uh, to the purchasing evaluation process so now, am I, am I way off base there, or do you think that's kind of a um, an interesting way to start to craft that 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 buying journey? No, I I think that makes complete sense. We articulate it slightly differently, but I think we're working to the exact same uh, uh, end goal, which is whether you call it um, marketing above the funnel um, or you know the way that we like to think about. It, I think it's the same principle we're talking about here is. Um, you know, commercial insight, this idea of insight about not about the world, but about your customer's business, that leads back to your unique strength. That is insight you can commercialize or monetize. So that's the name commercial insight. Um, one of the things we find about commercial insight that's so powerful is it, it, it doesn't just sort of pick up a customer in the purchase process, but has the power when done well to create a purchase process in itself, right? Because you're essentially teaching your customer that there's a problem they have that they either haven't identified or haven't fully appreciated. So in many ways, I think that's, um, if I understand you right, that's kind of what you mean by working above the funnel is essentially it creates a purchase funnel in and of itself when it's not. And again, the, the, the goal here is not about, because the very story you laid out, I think is perfect, is um, notice that's not just content about the world or about the cloud or about 
cybersecurity, whatever it is. That's often that kind of content is often known as thought leadership, right? So, and we want to demonstrate that we understand the cloud, we understand big data, we understand the world, and and we've got a lot of interesting and smart things to say. And you can trust us as a supplier because we understand this industry, and you should come to us first. But that's not what you're talking about, really, right? So that the kind of content you're talking about is much more specific to be able to sit down with a particular company and say, yes, we know about the world of cloud and security and everything else, but let's look at your organization, and I can demonstrate to you based on our knowledge of how all these things work, how you are more exposed to uh, risk in your company than you may have a fully appreciated. And you can turn that into a diagnostic exercise or all sorts of other questionnaires and things that they can actually self-assess based on a framework that you've taught them. So, and this is what we like about commercial insights. So unlike thought leadership, which is content designed to teach your customers that you're smart, commercial insight is content designed to teach your customers that they're wrong. As I often joke, just don't say it like that. Um, but when you teach customers that there's an opportunity that they have to make money, save money in this story, mitigate risk in ways they haven't fully appreciated, you are actually not just tapping into a purchase process, you are creating one. And so if that's what you mean by, uh, uh, at least when done well. So if that's what you mean, Joel, by sort of working above the funnel, then we're 100% aligned on that. Well, you know what? You're, you're, I think you're being uh, generous to me, right? Because I, I think I mean that now, <laughs> right? That we've, we've talked about it, right? <laughs> Um, but listen, it's, good, it's confirming though, right? Because I'm kind of my thoughts evolving on it as well, right? And that's that's it's helpful to me, right? Because I kind of thought, okay, to get into our current marketing process. But what you're saying is, hey, no, you're actually creating an entire buying process uh, from that idea or that notion or challenging the customer that they might not they might not be on the right track. So listen, Brent, I could literally go all day, but I, I want to ask you two more questions, okay? So I want to be mindful of your time. The first one has to do with talent acquisition and what are the what are the skill sets that we need internally to start to head in this direction, right? Because I always, whenever I talk to business leaders, I'm always talking to them about their their values and their mission and whatnot. But I'm finding that to to do this, the creative side of this sometimes is sometimes gets me in trouble because I don't have the creative kind of um, capital on my staff, sometimes I can't identify what I don't know about my customer's business yet. So you know, I'm not sure if that's it or not, but do you, do you get into that at all on the challenger customer? And, and if not, what do you think as far as talent acquisition goes, where I ought to prioritize my, my needs and demand for talent? Yeah, so, so actually we spent a lot of time thinking about this and building out a whole suite of capabilities around this, Joel. So forgive me if I I, I want, uh, let me give you the best answer I can outside of our membership, and I'll tell you a little a couple things that we're working on now. But the um, uh, so let's talk about sort of sales and marketing, right? So on the sales side, in many ways, um, it is just understanding the idea of these five profiles that we found in the challenger sale that you mentioned at the top of the of our conversation is you know, the hard worker, the relationship builder, et cetera. Just knowing sort of what are the the um, the, the attributes, the behaviors, the knowledge that represent each. And, and one of the things we'd often tell people is that you know, look, it, it's not that these Profiles have to be mutually exclusive and that you're all of one and none of the other four. You're going to find overlap. So oftentimes we tell people, I've worked with a lot of sales organizations where the, the sales reps will kind of get wrapped around the axle around which profile are you. And that's how they'll, they'll articulate it and ask each other. It's like, are you a challenger or which, or, you know, which of these profiles are you? And oftentimes what we'll tell them is, you know, at the end of the day, because this is how the research was constructed, and we did this on purpose, which is not trying to figure out what profile someone is, but rather of the five profiles we found, what are the behaviors that define world-class performance, the behaviors that define a challenger? And then ask, you know, whatever profile I may be in today, how can I adopt some of those same behaviors so that when I go out to market, uh, I, I essentially am emulating some of the behaviors that, that really define a challenger rep. So when it comes to hiring, uh, for that matter, even promoting or, or managing or coaching, 
it's not at the profile level, but at the behavioral level. So this idea of, uh, of teaching, uh, tailoring, taking control, what, you know, how do I break that down? And so we've, we've provided, you know, even outside the, the membership of CEB and our sales membership, uh, some hiring guides and some coaching guides. Um, since the, the first book came out, we've actually gotten pretty robust, we've had a pretty robust data set. We, we've since partnered with another company, which we've ultimately came to acquire, a company called SHL, which they have this massive database called all based on not just sales, but uh, the, what they call the universal um, uh, competency index across uh, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of employees across every function. And what we did is we were able to sort of marry that database up with our challenger database. And we now actually offer as, a, as an engagement through our CEV practice uh, some incredibly robust tools to help companies make better bets on the talent that they're acquiring in sales to, to be more predictive of challenger-type behaviors. Um, on the marketing side, uh, literally, I was, right before I talked to you today, Joel, um, I was just finalizing, I was working with our team to put the final approval on hiring guides for marketers. So if you're a channel marketer versus a product marketer versus a demand generation, a generation marketer, for example, what does challenger mean for you? What, are, what does it mean about what you should keep doing, what you should stop doing, what you should tweak, what tweak a lot? Uh, and all of that guidance is coming out uh, in the next couple, uh, gosh, well, very soon, the next couple of weeks uh, from CEB Marketing. Uh, and our members will have full access to that. And if anyone, and some of that will go out into the public domain as well. But we've been thinking a lot about this, trying to figure out, you know, even it goes back to things like uh, the capability to not just understand your business, but to understand your customer's business, which means having a deep knowledge of how that customer organization works. So does that mean hiring specialists out of that industry vertical? Does it mean hiring MBAs who are trained in modeling exercises so I know how to model different kinds of business? These be the kinds of things that we're sort of considering, uh, and some of them we think are going to be more important than others. I'm glad I asked that one too. Where, what's a good place if people aren't familiar with CEB? Like, where's the best destination for them to check some of this out? Um, probably just if you start with our, our main uh, flagship website, which is cebglobal.com. So cebglobal, c-e-b-g-l-o-b-a-l, cebglobal.com, and you can drill down from there into our marketing practice or sales practice, or for that matter, our IT or procure. We actually, believe it or not, have a uh, a procurement leadership council as well. We help procurement advisors get better on how to procure. So <laughs> we kind of play both sides of the story, but but a, a wide range of capabilities. And we have a, a solution, what we call our solutions group, which does full-on consulting and engagements around how to build this stuff for companies who, who don't feel prepared to do it themselves with our support. So so a lot of ways we can help companies do a lot of these things. So listen, I want to ask one last question, Brent, because again, I want to be mindful of your time here. Um, and it's about software as a service, right? And just to give you a little bit of perspective on this, I spent a number of years at some large ERP players. And, you know, back in the early part of uh, the 21st century and all through the 2000s, you know, the sales guys there tended to be, in my opinion, heavy-duty relationship builders, and they had an army of sales support around them, right? So they had experts for everything, and I was one of those guys who came in as an expert in my area, right? But today, it seems, especially with what I kind of think of as SaaS 2.0, some of the newer uh, SaaS applications that are out there, that you know that 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 model. You know, there's no more twenty-five, thirty million dollar software deals. There, there's a longer-term annuity, and the subscription model just doesn't, but can't bear the load of that heavy-duty support infrastructure. Now, so two questions buried here is one is, do you, do you think that's accurate that the newer sort of SaaS model and technology can't support that kind of infrastructure, that sales support infrastructure? And secondly, is this another potential catalyst that, hey, our sales guys need to be educators, therefore our, you know, our approach ought to be this, uh, this content-oriented educational um, marketing kind of model? Again, what do you think about that? Uh, you know, I, I think you're really on to something. This is where 
So the way it works here at CB and our sales and marketing practice and all our others, I suppose, for that matter, too, is every year we, we sort of set in front of ourselves, based on the input of heads of sales and marketers around the world that we work with, one big research topic uh, that we go after with a lot of data. And over time, those things accrete into bigger projects, which ultimately then wind up in book form or some or magazine or you know, journal articles, things like that. But the, um, where that, the reason I mention all that, Joel, is because where – where we're getting a lot of heat right now as we talk particularly to heads of sales is this very question you just raised, which is the complexity of the sale itself today and, and the, the poor salesperson, even if they're you know, a very experienced key account manager, just trying to herd the cats of their own organization, all their subject matter experts and product teams, to try to stitch together these broader solutions that we were talking about earlier in our conversation. It, you know, the, we hear the term quarterback a lot, right, so that my sales rep has to be a quarterback across this organization. And one uh, one of our heads of sales we work with closely memorably recently referred to what he called the school bus sale, which is, you know, it takes so many different subject matter experts and, and you know, domain experts uh, to, to work with our customers that we need a school bus just to hold them all when we go and do a client visit. Uh, and I think what we'd all agree is it's, it's, it's if, 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 I don't know if it's sustainable or not, but it's certainly not sustainable at a very profitable level, right? And it's very hard. Uh, and, it, and in many ways, we just get in our own way, and the complexity of the whole thing seems to uh, threaten to bring the whole house of cards down on itself. So one of the, the things that we're looking at is really trying to figure out how can we help sales organizations simplify that entire process so that um, so that sales reps aren't so completely overwhelmed, and if they're working on their own, that they have the kinds of tools they need in a, in a more efficient way uh, to, to make you know, to, to deliver on the promises they have to deliver on the customers. Now, the flip side is kind of the second question you had embedded there, which is the same time it turns out, and this is our newest, the work we just finished up, which was written since the book came out um, and, and was a big part of the big conference we did a couple weeks ago in Vegas, which is the story of, um, it turns out it's not just suppliers who are overwhelmed. You know who else is overwhelmed? Our customers. So a lot of the very things that we assumed, and, and we in our research have talked a lot about over the last several years of empowering our customers. They have, they have so much information available to them today. They're, they're empowered with all this information, and they have, they have so many options that they can go out and consider. They've, they're empowered with options, and there's all these people on their side with all this deep expertise. They're empowered with all these people. And what we found is that, you know, we're not researched this complexity in the last six months or so. We've come to appreciate that this world of more information, more options, and more people for our customers has actually become, over time, a story of too many people, too much information, and too many options to the point where customers are actually overwhelmed. It's very much like – there's an interesting story on the B2C side right now, um, which is well-documented in, in business uh, journals around the um, travel agency industry and the fact that travel agents today – those you remember what happened in 1995 when the, you know, the Internet comes out, or at least the World Wide Web is launched, and the Internet browsers, and we all have all this information, and the travel agency industry collapses overnight because – Everyone can now self-serve with information. They don't need travel agents anymore. You fast forward to today, Joel, in 2015, you know, who's making a comeback? Travel agencies. And the reason why is because all of that information that empowered us as consumers today overwhelms us. You try to plan a trip today, and there's 15 hotel sites and 100 different, you know, you name it. It's like, it's so overwhelming. If I just pick up the phone and call someone and tell them, have them tell me what to do, that would be amazing. And we found this in our research this year, that the, the more responsive we are to customers' demands, the actual harder we make it for those customers to buy. In a world where they're already struggling with too much information, if we give them even more information, we actually make things worse, not better. And we've seen this in our data. So it really comes down to this question of rather than being a responsive supplier, how do we become what we've come to call in our research a prescriptive supplier, helping customers know what to do better than they know themselves, not just 
be responsive to you know to their requests for options and and uh, and information, but to explain to them why this option is better than the two that they're asking for. To tell them who should be involved in the purchase process rather than asking them who should be involved in the purchase process by guiding to the information rather than just providing whatever they ask for. And this prescriptive approach, this is sort of I'm giving you sort of a glimpse inside behind the curtain around what we're talking about with our members right now. But this prescriptive approach becomes incredibly important across marketing content, across sales reps, to actually help customers solve for the biggest thing, that the biggest challenge they're facing today, we think, which is the fact that they're just overwhelmed with all the very things that we thought were empowering them. So stay tuned on that more. But this, this really, you see your question about complexity really kind of, it, it, it sort of tripped this wire for us because it, it's such an interesting thing that we're watching happen right now where it's not just complexity on the supplier side, but complexity on the buyer side that, that's really mucking up the system so badly today. Wow, that that is, uh, you know, as you were right before you said prescriptive, I'm like, wow, it sounds like a prescriptive approach is what's required here. So again, I'm I'm uh, kind of edified that you confirmed that for me. So look, I, I'm going to wrap it up there, and I just want to let you know who we've been talking to. We've been talking to Brent Adamson. He's the co-author of the Challenger Sale, which was written about 2009, 2010. Fantastic book. You should pick that up. Some great research on sales there. But then since then. Uh, his organization, CEB, which you could find at cebglobal.com, has uh, come out with a new book called The Challenger Customer, which takes these, uh, this idea and some of the research and helps you understand it's really not a sales methodology, but really a commercial methodology on how you uh, take your products and services to market and really differentiate yourselves from a, a true uh, perspective of, of prescription for your customers in areas that they need that prescription and they might not even be aware that they need yet. So listen, Brent, I cannot thank you enough for your time. I want to thank you for you know, just sharing your insight and information with me and most of all uh, with my audience. So thank you very much. Absolutely. Happy to help and, and excited. You know, we're all in this together, Joel. So it's always good to share ideas.